audio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of Doc Talk with Monument Health. My name is Mark Houston, and joining me today is Dr. Stephen Tamang. Doctor, thanks for hanging out with me My uh, pleasure. here on the podcast. Now, we were talking a little bit before we got started, and you're, you're in effect a local, right? I mean, born and raised in Montana. Yes, sir. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're familiar. Did you ever, did you ever spend time? Well, Great Falls. I mean, that's how often did you ever get out here? Uh, no, never, up. No, really? never. It, was, it was entirely my wife's fault that I was here, but <laughs> I'm happy to be here and I've since moved my parents out here when we had kids. So really, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty locked in and happy to be here. Well, that's, that's awesome. And you've been here, what, about a, a decade, I believe yep. you said. Okay. Yep, yep. So you've kind of made it home and you're, sure. you're familiar with everybody for sure. Um, well, the reason why we wanted to have you in here today, doctor, was to talk about something that I know you are extremely passionate about. And something that Monument is uh, kind of getting off the ground here uh, as well, and that has to deal with addiction specifically. Correct? How how did you fall into this, or why did this become such a passion for you? Well, uh, as a initially as an outpatient doctor, um, I encountered an awful lot of folks who had addiction, and I, I realized that if you're trying to make a big impact on someone, um, it's pretty low hanging fruit, and so. Um, just through keeping up with the changes that have been quite rapid in the field of addiction medicine, uh, the treatment modalities got really effective. Um, and so I just started doing more and more of it. And when you do it and you have good results, you end up getting more referrals. Um, and so it just grew into a, a unexpectedly a, a fairly large portion of my practice. And then now as I've moved to a hospitalist, uh, it's it's become apparent that uh, in, the, in the hospital world, um, it's a very significant need as well. And so I was uh, grateful that the, the Monument folks uh, at the executive level really wanted to expand that and, and start addressing addiction kind of throughout the whole system. Did you, have, did you have personal experience with this? Was there something in your background that, that, that brought it around too? I mean, if you're comfortable talking oh, about something like that. You know, I've got the most boring background ever. <laughs> um, no, th- thankfully, I have not, uh, by the grace of God, I, I have not uh, fell victim to, uh, to any, any particular uh, substance use disorder. But of course, just like almost everybody, uh, I know people mm-hmm. that, that have, and um, some of the smartest, brightest, hardworking people that you can imagine uh, that have. And so it, and then of course, just professionally now, having really been involved in this for a long time, um, I can think back on patients that, uh, you know, it's claimed their life and it's, it's such a shame. It's, it's a terribly painful thing just to lose patients that are from addiction um, when organically outside of that particular issue, you know, they're very healthy, functional humans. And, uh, you know, you can I think the average person can really relate to that when they, they look at some of these, like, you know, very uh, influencers, very famous. Mm-hmm. Matt Perry was a, you know, he made, oh, you know, absolutely. He loved, people loved him. And it was clearly alcohol use disorder that ended his life. And so when you kind of look at that, people can relate to that. And so personally, I've, I've seen so much of that now. I feel like it's kind of burned into, into my psyche. So, yeah. So do you feel like, and maybe it's just because the, the, the social media and the internet and how we are so connected anymore, has there been a rise in addiction? Is it, is it, it seems like 
it, it's just almost out of control in some instances. Do you feel that way? So the change in addiction over the last, um, I'd say, 20 years or so um, has, has prim- primarily been around opioids. Okay. Um, and that's why you hear the term opioid crisis. And unfortunately, um, that process resulted in a lot of secondary um, addictions because as you had a large group of people in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, get addicted to opioids um, because they were being massively uh, prescribed, and, and we can get into that mm-hmm. for a, a lot of different reasons, um, you developed a, a, like a, a populace that had an addiction problem. So an, a neurobiological issue had arisen due to opioid exposure. Um, and then over time, we got a lot smarter about, gosh, we shouldn't be prescribing so many opioids. And, and law enforcement got smarter about her- <clears throat> you know, heroin and so people from that initial population um, turn to other substances. So obviously it's, it's more nuanced than that, but a big piece of it is the rise of opioids subsequently fueled other addictions. Um, I have many patients that turn to stimulants, primarily methamphetamines, mm-hmm. um, because they were under so much of a, of a craving or a jonesing, maybe you would say, for, for opioids. You know, they try to scratch that itch any way they yeah. can, alcohol. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's a, it's a very destructive pattern, but so that's really been the biggest change. Then there's some others that have been kind of interesting that have just sort of technology driven, like vaping was kind of something that came up for a while and that was interesting. But yeah, um, overall the trend got pretty bad, but I think, um, we're at a reflection point right now. Um, and I'm pretty optimistic about the future. Well, really quick for, for people that, and I guess I'm not super familiar with what an opioid is. Sure. So you think of it like a painkiller. Okay. Um, and so an opioid or opiate specifically, it, it binds a type of receptor um, in, in the CNS, central nervous system, and it diminishes pain. And, and the reason why it's uh, potentially fatal is because in high doses, it is quite a sedative. Um, and so people stop breathing. Um, and so that's why you, you probably have heard of people getting like Narcan, you know, like mm-hmm. the ambulance right. drivers. So that reverses the opioid sedative effects. So you hear about people waking up, you know, after they've taken an overdose of an opioid. So heroin is an opioid. Um, and so uh, that's why it was particularly fatal. Um, a lot of the other substances that people uh, historically have abused did not have that level of lethality. Right. But fentanyl, obviously, um, <laughs> the synthetic opioids, a uh, whole nother ball game, you know, it makes heroin look like mm-hmm. nothing, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the mortality was much higher. Well, I'm assuming that when opioids first became a thing, they 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 had to have been uh, uh, something that people, doctors, were excited about. Oh yeah. Because you know uh, they realized that they could they could help people with this, that traumatic pain. Correct. Oh yeah. O- you know, opioids have been around forever. You right. Know, it's, uh, it's not a it's not a new thing. Morphine was around uh, you know forever, and in the various forms, morphine. Go to a dentist. You know, you get Vicodin or Tylenol or codeine or you have surgery, you get an opioid. It was really, it was really in the late '90s that um, the pharmaceutical companies they started developing um, some very novel approaches uh, to delivery. Um, it's kind of the the bioavailability and the pharmacokinetics of these drugs changed, um, and it was through like just a horrible Swiss cheese of missing the the safety marks that they became. Uh, highly prevalent. There's a lot of great, like Hollywood, I don't know if it's Hollywood anymore, but like 
Netflix and, and Hulu. They, there's some really great series now, you know, describing these. The names are, are uh, evading me, but I, I know there's... Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there are... Yeah, there, there are. And they're very, you know, they, they talk about the Sackler family. Yes. Know, and uh, Purdue Pharma. And, um, they're, they're shockingly correct, you know. And if you, if you just read about, like, you go to the Wall Street Journal and you can, you can search, like, the Sackler family. Oh, I encourage people to definitely look into that. It, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. That it whole really family is. was... Oh boy, yeah. are you going to go to some dark places, really? <laughs> yep. And so it was it was early, it was early, late '90s um, where they started developing these. I think the classic one is you know OxyContin, mm-hmm. um, and they they came out with a, a series of products that made people feel great. I mean, opioids make you feel mm-hmm. great, and in in the right circumstance, they're a wonderful tool. Um, but obviously, they carry not only fatal and high dosage but they also carry severe addiction potential. Now the studies that came out that were sponsored by the drug companies, those actually had, they were actually decent studies. This is where it got tough. Like the studies that were done were peer reviewed in respected journals. Um, the problem is they had the wrong conclusions, which we know now. So s- medical uh, research obviously is not perfect. Mm-hmm. Like we can identify studies that we have now saying, okay, these were all wrong. But they were able to leverage those studies to get approval from the FDA for non-addiction. They, they came out as like lower class of um, addiction. So, and then, and then it got worse because you had uh, government bodies like JACO who oversee hospitals and say, we're going to make pain a quality measure. So if you're in the hospital and your pain is not being addressed and treated, which almost always with an opioid, we're going to mark, we're going to ding the hospital for that. You know, that's so... I remember when I was a resident, um, when I presented a patient during rounds, I had to say the patient's pain score on a scale of 1 to 10, and if it was above a certain threshold, is what we're doing about it, which was almost always an opioid. And that was because of the FDA's decision based on studies that were wrong and and probably quite a bit of influence from the pharmaceutical companies. So that created that perfect storm. Mm Created uh, created the the, the the birth of the opioid epidemic. So what uh, what when you're talking about that, and I'm thinking of opioids, and, and you keep talking about the severe addiction. What 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 causes that addiction? What in that little pill that you take? Why is it so highly addictive? Yeah, it's uh it's all about dopamine. Um, so uh, there there's um, a lot of different aspects that cause you to have an addiction. Um, but the most basic and the most powerful is when you take anything that causes a pleasurable experience in your brain or a dopamine release, you create a, a wiring, or the, in, the, in uh, technical terms, they, they, they call it the, uh, the neurobiology reroute. And what your body begins to crave is an additional dopamine surge. Um, and so when people, when people, if, if you took a small amount on a short time and you weren't genetically predisposed, it's very unlikely you would obtain an addiction. But if your pres- prescriber wrote you for OxyContin for 30 days every day, it is very unlikely you would, not, you would develop an addiction. Right. And so all of a sudden, from your brain's perspective, getting an oxycodone is more exciting to you than eating a, a good meal, having sex, getting a... You know, if you if you inherit a bunch of money or you get a windfall, like you get a little dopamine rush, the opioid would be more important to you than that. Like it's that level of craving. And, you know, you can try to fight it. 
like the frontal part of your brain allows you to have volition and control and you're like you know like mm-hmm. intellectually you can say uh you know th- I, this is a bad thing i don't want to take it but the primitive part of your brain is telling you this is the most important thing in the world your kids don't matter your job doesn't matter this is what you need and it's a terrible battle um and once your neurobiology is routed in that uh in that way that process stays for a very long time and for some folks unfortunately it stays permanently and so what we try to do is introduce pharmacology in addition to behavioral methods to try to manage it um but for the majority of folks once they've had a rewiring of their neurobiology um it's a lifelong process and you can encounter this like if you've ever seen aa or mm-hmm. you know um it, it's a great peer support group um but the thing that is very uh useful i think for most folks to recognize is even after you've been there for years they're still sometimes struggling you know it's not like okay i made 90 days you know i'm good right many of those folks they still celebrate their anniversaries like you know still going cuz it's still a battle well if you've ever tried to quit smoking exactly you'll know exactly what that 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 feeling is too that's right um you know i 23 years ago i did and to this day you still have those moments we're like boy a cup of coffee and a cigarette my god that'd be good right now you right. know so i can't imagine on something like an opioid or fentanyl or something like that i'm um, you know when you can still have those little cravings after that long on something as simple as cigarettes well not, not simple it's, they're terrible for you we know that um i you know i can't imagine what it takes to get out of that and i suppose a lot of this too uh for people that struggle with this kind of addiction that 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 they know they're addicted and they know it's going to be a problem there's got to be a stigma that goes along with this too that you guys have to fight as well don't you oh sure you know and it's interesting um to kind of talk about something you mentioned um in regarding to like comparing substances yeah uh, a lot of science has gone into trying to figure out like what makes a particular substance more addicting than another substance yeah know? that's really interesting it is and um we've we've gotten a lot better about it we're we're using a lot of techniques now um functional mris are being utilized to try to determine like um which substances lights up the pleasure centers of the brain and then equally important down the road which parts which brains look more deprived of dopamine because it's not just the surge you'll get a surge when you use your substance but then afterwards your dopamine levels are far lower than the average human so in those studies this is this is interesting because um they they can now accurately and reproducibly compare dopamine surges among multiple substances and so if you look at it uh, opioids are up there but cocaine is up there um tobacco is up there and then they pl- they put it against other things you know they put it against food they put it against sex and th- those are there as well but when you look at the numbers by far methamphetamine is incredibly addicting now the difference between meth and uh opioids meth is not nearly as lethal so like when you look at our when you look at our populace in South Dakota meth is the biggest prevalent right. problem mm-hmm. but the lethality of methamphetamines is much less why is that it's the neurobiology um it is it is incredibly addicting so just to give you scales say like you and i say just baseline we're mm-hmm. at 100% normal dopamine level um if you take an opioid you'll go up maybe to 200 to 250 
similar if, you know, probably a little less with, with tobacco or somewhere around there, depending on what studies you're looking at. Cocaine gets you a little higher. Methamphetamines will take you up to 1,800% or so. So um, not, only does, <laughs> not only does methamphetamine cause a dopamine surge, it actually binds to a receptor and it spins, you can think of it, it spins it backwards. It releases as much dopamine as your body, that part of your brain can make into your neurobiology circuit. And you feel, I, I can't imagine how you feel. It oh. must feel amazing. <laughs> I mean, it has um, to. Yeah. And, and the, the level of addiction is, is severe um, with meth, but um, the lethality is much lower. And so that's why in our current situation, you see so much methamphetamine use. If, if they had the same level of addiction to opioids, they would have died. Like the, the overdose would have brought the population in that regard down. What is the, what is the biological function of dopamine? Why oh, is it so important? Yeah, yeah it's, it's key. You know, it's, it's one of the kings. So like epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, like it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's, a, pro, it's, a, it's a neurotransmitter that if you didn't have, you would not be a human. Like if, <laughs> if you're happy, your, your dopamine levels rise. Right. Um, you know, and a lot of the the pharmacology that we use to treat depression modulates dopamine, um, and it, and it's it's complicated and beautiful, um, but in when it gets out of um, its normal ranges, it can cause several um, psychiatric conditions, which, which is why many times when you see folks who abuse um, medication, or excuse me, abuse substances that cause dopamine, you see psychosis induced from. Like, I'm sure you've encountered or heard of, you know, like uh, methamphetamine-associated psychosis. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a very common thing where patients appear just very much like a schizophrenic or, or schizoaffective. Um, you know, they loud, argumentative, talking to themselves, pressured, manic, that kind of thing. Um, and that's a dopamine response uh, in relation to chronic uh, neurobiology damage from uh, from the stimulant. So it's a, it's a great thing, but when it gets out of whack, it causes a lot of diseases and not much gets it worse than, than methamphetamines. So we still need something though in, in your profession for people that, uh, you've talked about depression, um, people that go in for surgery with chronic pain, there still needs to be ways to, f- to fight this, correct? Absolutely. So uh, what, what, where do we go then? What's what's next for it? Yeah, we've gotten we as medical community and just humans, like we've gotten much better at this. And um, you know, they are the opioids are now much more appropriately scheduled. You know, so um, you you can still get prescribed opioids. Of course, I mean yeah, they're yes. they're not we're not removing them from the from the arsenal. No, and that's an important point. Like I think. Some people argue we've gone too far. We've made them too restrictive. And every now and again, you'll hear, you know, you'll hear stories about people that have terrible debilitating syndromes and they weren't given, uh, you know, proper pain control. And so I think the the pendulum, you know, was at one point where anyone with subjective pain gets opioids. Mm-hmm. That was obviously insane. Um, and then it swung over to like we're kind of scared of them because it's funny. You can look at news articles from like the 90s, late 90s, where doctors were getting sued because they were not prescribing enough. They were like, um, people were dying, and, uh, you know, of something, and the doctors weren't prescribing enough. Um, so they're getting sued for that. And then you fast forward a decade, they're getting sued because they were prescribing too much. But we're a lot better at that now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, any reasonable uh, provider is going to know that an opioid has its place. Um, and, and thankfully, I think most providers now are starting to recognize you know, opioid use disorder is a consequence, you know, of 
uh, neurobiologic change, and so it's really a disease, and so we have options to treat it. And, and as you alluded to, stigma was a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like I think um, earlier on, you would look at a disease like, okay, um, you know, someone who had a, a problem with opioids, and, and somehow that wouldn't be considered the same as you know, someone who, who had a problem with like, high blood pressure, when in, in reality, they're both, if you look at it from like, just a paper standpoint, they're both chronic diseases. They both require chronic management, right? Um, but somehow, you know, because it, it is related to something potentially um, less, more illicit initially, or not even necessarily, those could have been prescribed, but worse social standing that it, somehow it is classified as, as stigma. But we're getting better there, too. <laughs> well, I know. I've, I, I think the last time I was prescribed an opioid was having a wisdom tooth pulled. But going back to the stigma, I remember getting the prescription, and, and this was, you know, kind of at the height of the, 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 the everything, everybody was getting opioids. I'm like, I, I don't know if I want to take them. You know, and I think that can be a problem, though, too, with people that um, hear the horror stories and think, well, first time I take one of these, I'm now an addict, right? And I'm not going to be able to break out of this. And that was a little bit my fear. So I was like, well, I guess it's ibuprofen for this. It hurts like hell, but that's all I'm going to take, right? So I think that has to play into it, too, a little bit. Um, you know, people just need to sit down with, with, with you as a doctor and understand the process. And with Monument Health now, can you talk a little bit about what is happening there and your role and what, what, what changes are coming or what, you know, uh, you're seeing that's exciting? Yeah, I think nationally um, we're seeing a, a very positive change. Um, and I think it stems from the fact that we have tools that are effective. Um, when, as I alluded to before, when you compare a substance use disorder um, against other chronic diseases, um, you can, JAMA is a very respected mm-hmm. um, agency, I guess, uh, and they, they've published on this quite, quite a lot. Um, and you can compare if you have, you know, for example, alcohol use disorder or opioid use disorder, and, and you have those patients under evidence-based care, the relapse rate is favorable or equivalent to other chronic diseases. And, th- and that's really because um, the FDA has gotten some stuff right. You know, we have medications that, that can help. So you, you mentioned smoking before. Like some people, you know, really benefit from Chantex. You know, some mm-hmm. people really benefit from, um, you know, Wellbutrin for that or, or nicotine replacement products. And so that's an easy way to think about it um, for people that have opioid addiction or people that have alcohol use disorder, or some of the other things even that are kind of out there, you know, some of the folks that struggle with, you know, hallucinogens or dissociatives, Mm -hmm. there's tools that you can use that actually work. And so that's the change. Um, And so once that kind of got realized, um, I think the mindset started changing. And so you see addiction medicine now as a medical subspecialty, and it's growing exponentially. Right. Because all of a sudden, um, the health systems are realizing hey, we can take a lot better care of patients, um, which is obviously in their mission. But as a side of that, um, you actually make the system work a lot better because addiction has a terrible tendency to uh, not only ruin a person's health, but socioeconomically destroy them. um, And they end up becoming very heavy, uh, inappropriate healthcare utilizers. So if, if you throw up a Venn diagram of inappropriate healthcare utilization with patients who suffer from substance use disorder, you know, the Venn diagram is basically like this, almost the same. Um, and so health systems, I think, across the country are recognizing that 
if, if you can even make a small dent, um, which practically speaking, you can make a pretty big dent uh, with minimal effort, um, you can not only help the system do better, but more importantly, you, you really make a difference for the patients. And then that really spreads out to the community because every person who struggles with substance use affects their entire social network in a very, very large way. You know, it's a, especially if it's like, you know, a parent, you know, yeah. it has bad downward effects or it knocks out some of, you know, very, uh, very useful people for society. It knocks out people that are in business. It knocks out entrepreneurs, you know, it knocks out people who are amazing artists and, and talented folks. So yeah, it, it helps the community, helps the system. And so that's why there's been this rise. And so I'm grateful to uh, it's not just me, of course, but I'm, I'm grateful to be um, spearheading it for Monument, and um, I'm happy to be, you know, here to get to get to talk about right. it and uh, hopefully uh, educate some folks about it. Well, what would you say, as we kind of wrap this up, what would you say to somebody that, that might be listening to the podcast right now that is grappling with an addiction and just, you know, they're, they're worried about the stigma. Maybe they don't have a lot of people that know about it. You know, it's affecting a small group, but they want to reach out. What do you tell them initially? If you could look at them right now and say, hey, here's step one. How do you start that? Yeah, so this is a conversation that, that we have a lot. Um, and I think the first thing is just being truthful um, and compassionate. And that, that's like, um, here's, the, here's the problem. If you go to an average doctor, even now, um, they're not necessarily going to be in a position um, to be the most up-to-date on addiction medicine. This is a fact. It's unfortunate. Um, and so what many patients have come, I would say the majority, um, from my experience, they get their, their information from social media. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's strange because uh, you think of social media as relatively unreliable. Can we just know? say that TikTok is a terrible place yes. to get your medical <laughs> yes, it advice? Is, okay, it is perfect. a terrible Good. place. <laughs> um, and I would never advise anyone going there, but I would say the majority of people yeah. get their information from these spots. And um, it's interesting that the people that have like the most, I follow many of them because I'm curious about mm -hmm. the, the pulse of it. The, uh, the information that they um, spit out in many, t many cases is accurate. And it's truthful, um, and that's why you see all these people trying to treat their own addiction. I've had folks, they you know, they look me up because they they look for addiction medicine. They find me, then they come in, they ask for this regime of medicine, and that regime of medicine was recommended on TikTok, oh and boy. it's like, wow, mm. this regime of medicine is precise and correct. And um, again, I'm not endorsing TikTok. right. I no, make I that get clear, it. But my my point is like. The medical community is a step behind mm -hmm. truth in this. We're catching up. Right. Um, so when, when I would see somebody, first thing I would just say is like, let me just explain to you what this actually is and let me put it in context. So if it's, you know, if they have alcohol use disorder or stimulant use disorder, I'd say this is why you have these cravings. And despite probably trying to quit a thousand times, this is likely why you failed. And this is, if they want to know about it, we can go deep into the neurobiology. And if they don't, I just say, now these are the seven or eight FDA-approved options that can help you combat this. And, uh, and then I can lay it out from an uh, epidemiological standpoint and say, you know, it's very likely that there will be a relapse at some point. This is, you know, statistically very common. But that does not mean everything you've done in the past is, is a failure. Many people feel that way. Like, you know, I was, I was sober for six months and then I relapsed. They feel like their whole life is over. Everything they had done is worthless. That's just not so. No, you went you know? six months. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. amazing, right? It, exactly. And it would be the same way to say if you were, 
an insulin dependent diabetic and then you know you became careless and you didn't take your insulin and you had a diabetic you know complication or DK right. or some crisis that somehow everything you've done before is <laughs> terrible and you're worthless and once they get educated and then so you, you explain that and then you're honest and you don't try to you know we've done a terrible job trying to scare people before yeah. which is just insane you know and so you're just honest truthful hopefully loving um, and then people respond to that um, and then it's like okay I have these meds I got someone who can listen to me I have someone who won't judge me if I make a mistake I have someone I can confide in that I'm struggling and I know that they're going to be on a framework of reality and not like, you know, wag the finger. Right. That makes all the difference. And so it's a process. And, and younger folks in my data suggests that younger folks, they get this um, very, very much. Like if you talk about addiction um, with the younger population, they're actually quite smart. They do not want to be addicted to things. Yeah. You know, um, except you try, their phones. Except for their phones. Yeah. <laughs> try to give, you know, try to recommend smoking to you know, someone yeah, right. in their youth, you know, they're going to yeah. look at you like, that's disgusting. Exactly. Get that away from me. And so I'm optimistic about the future. And I'm, I'm grateful that Monument's taken this head on. Well, there's uh, there's so much more we could get into, uh, Dr. Tamang. So I'm hoping at some point you'll come back and we can talk about this some more, uh, you know, specific things uh, that I think. I have a, just a lot of things that were popping into my head. But I thought, well, we might have to drill down on those a little bit later on. But um, again, Dr. Stephen Tamang, you're a, I learned the word hospitalist today, too, uh, with Monument Health. Uh, you you do specialize in addiction uh, medicine. Uh, so again, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. This has been fun. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Homeslice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Hatton, engineered by Chris Jaquist, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry.